This podcast contains real talk about the mayhem of motherhood, along with a weekly medical mystery. Because all of these topics can be pretty graphic, and because we use explicit language, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Motherhood, Mayhem, and Medical Mysteries podcast. On this show, we are not attempting to solve the major medical mysteries of the world or tell you how to raise your kids. We are definitely not doctors or scientists of any kind. We are just two moms here to provide you with support, resources, and maybe a few laughs along the way. We do a lot of research and will definitely share the things we learn, but please talk to a professional if you have specific concerns about your experiences. Here's Melanie. At any point in time, she will have at least 12 chapsticks. And here's Miranda, who was a storyteller on a local ghost walk for multiple years. So, Miranda, when I was coming up with your intro for today, I was trying to make it, you know, seasonally appropriate, and it's October now. For those of you who don't know, Miranda and I both lived for a number of years in a nearly coastal town that's kind of a small town, like an old-timey, like, what's the name of the town on the Gilmore Girls? Oh, yeah. Stars Hollow. It was very Stars Hollow-esque. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, every year they had a very elaborate ghost walk where, and it's a beautiful old Southern Amazing. town with all of these old houses and gorgeous. Yes. And the oak trees and with the Spanish moss hanging down and looking all spooky. So pretty. Mm. <laughs> so I think that it all started one year we went on the ghost walk. Yeah. Well, then the next year, Miranda, you know, she has her theater background <laughs> that still pops up from time to time. And they were looking for people to partake on said, you know, to yeah. be the storytellers. Yeah. So she ended up doing it. Was it three years? Three, I couldn't three remember. Three years in a row. And it was so Three years fine. in a row. It was so fine. I loved it. So, so listeners, this was an all out kind of thing. Like you met at a meeting point and everyone is dressed in like costume. Yeah. Like the, there's a person who walks you with a lantern uh -huh. from like house to house. You sit on bales of hay. Mm -hmm. All of the storytellers are very dramatic and in costume, you know? So Miranda and I are thinking that she, you had moved away by then. Yeah. You weren't here anymore. Yeah. And we're always looking for something that we can do mm -hmm. to like, you know, to get out of town and, and leave our right. families. To make an excuse to leave our children with our spouses for a minute so we can go do what we like to do. <laughs> right. So Miranda has this idea. Let's go to Charleston. And Charleston is incredibly historic, right? Yes. They have so many ghost story, much, much, much bigger city than where we live. Right, right. And we are really, our expectations were high, so weren't true. they? Yeah, because it's like you said, there's so much history there. I mean, Charleston is the holy city. It's like one of the very first places that, you know, the colonists started 
colonies in America. And so because of all of that, it seems like a really great place to go do a ghost walk and learn about all of the local haints, right? The haints and the haunts. Right. So, Miranda, please tell me about your first impression. When we arrived, now the meeting point is on the battery, Mm -hmm. which is down by the water. Like, you can see Fort Sumter, I'm pretty sure, on a clear day. So we're meeting there on not far from Meeting Street. It's very historic. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Please tell me. Uh, I'm going to try to remember. You may have to fill in for me because we had been drinking because we had an amazing dinner. I will say that. We had an amazing dinner. Oh, I forgot about them. That was the dinner that Mel literally flirted with our waiter. And I think we only ended up paying like 45% of our bill because he just gave us a bunch of free stuff. It was amazing. Well, that was actually, though, thanks to my husband because I my, that's a place that my husband plays music. That's what she occasionally. says. But- Y'all should see Mel when she's going out for a night on the town, okay? The cleavage is real, okay? And we're all here for it. So what had happened was we went down to the battery. We met the folks. And I want to say it was like this random middle-aged woman in like shorts and like a Folly Beach t-shirt and like a fanny pack. And she had like a pink t-shirt and a fanny pack on. <laughs> and she's like, well, hey, guys, uh, gather on around here. Um, I, I'm going to be the uh, tour guide for the ghost walk. And me and Melanie are kind of looking at each other because we paid good money for this. Like we came we came from hours away it for was- this. It was much more expensive than the local one in our little Stars Hollow town. Far more expensive. But, um, but we were like, I know that Miranda and I were like silently looking at each other going, well, she's not the guide. Like she right. must be like the organization like, lady. She's coordinating that, like, and your- getting the people together. And then she's going to send us off to the real guide who's actually a professional storyteller slash actor who's going to walk us through. Yeah, that's what we thought. That was not the case, folks. That was not the case. No, we were we were stuck with fanny pack for the next two hours, and and then remember there was that guy on our tour that was like so out of order that oh kept I can't even remember what he kept saying, but it was like borderline racist. Yeah, he was so unruly. It was not cool. But she, we were just like Ugh. it was it was not a good experience. And I remember then those drunk. <laughs> Those drunk ladies that got on the bus after they peed in the bushes, oh my gosh they just yes yes we were like what just happened to those girls oh my gosh it was crazy but I do remember the tour guide said well this is my first tour and as soon as she said that me and Melanie were like nope we're done this is the worst so I think at that point never a good sign no that's never a good and sign. even if it is here's a pro tip even if it is your first time doing something don't ever tell anybody it's your first time doing something don't ever do it Uh, unless maybe you do them at the very very end if it's gone really really well and you say hey by the way this is my first time then people are like wow that was really great i never would have guessed it was your first time when you say it at the beginning people just shut right on down it's true yeah well we did hang on and i mean honestly the ghost stories were incredible the stories themselves were good you're right that that one place where that bride was like, I don't even remember all of it, but it was wild and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But if they would take tips from our local hometown ghost walk and put people in costumes with lanterns, yep. 
I mean, makes a big difference. But the best part really of that does. whole trip, and Mel's not Mel's not telling this. The best no. part was that we stayed at an Airbnb, which was actually a yacht in somebody's backyard. So like it was a yard, a yard, it was a yard yacht, like homeboy had a yacht, it broke down and he's like, I know what I'm going to do with this fucking put it in the backyard and turn it into an Airbnb. And eventually I'll make enough money to maybe think about fixing it one day. And we stayed in that yacht in this man's backyard. We did. We really did. It was actually really it cool. It was really nice. But he had he had like a little community back there. <laughs> Remember the bathroom? The bathroom was at the very front of the yacht, like where it got pointy. And I kept hitting my head. Like... I kept banging my head on that. <laughs> Every time well, I would hit my head. <laughs> boats are always bad for hitting your head because it's like a low clearance or whatever. It was but so weird. Do you remember? Me and Melanie are like on the bow of the yacht, like with our wine in our cups that she had made for us. And we're like all dressed up like we're on a yacht because we're like, we're, this is just going to be what we do now. And there was it's, it's like a commune, like she said. And so there's like a tree house that's also an Airbnb. And then there was like a tiny house that was also an Airbnb. And there was a freshly married couple staying in the treehouse, yeah. which was really cool because it had a curly slide and a ladder. And that's kind of a cool thing to do on your honeymoon, you know, I mean, I guess you could exit via a slide, but I, a curly it was a little slide. close quarters to me. Like, <laughs> like they were right next to one another. Yeah, well, they were right next but to okay. the tiny house. And the tiny house uh -huh. was interesting because we didn't know anybody was in there. So we're just like chilling on the bow of the yacht with our wine. And next thing we know, the door of the tiny house swings open <laughs> and about 10 young Mennonite women came out mm -hmm. of the tiny house and they were you know in their traditional clothing and they had their their bags and all of their things and there there they went and mm -hmm. and they just filed they're, they're... they just filed right out so we had the honeymooners we had the mennonite women and then you had me and melanie staying in this man's yeah, backyard and, and i mean like i feel like it's important in. to say <laughs> that we were like essentially wearing like bras or bralettes it's true and like like we were like <laughs> scantily clothed and slightly intoxicated as the parade as the clown car full of mennonites in their long denim skirts and conservative tops marched past i i mean honestly i felt very much like a heathen at that moment and i was here for it like i i embraced it but i don't know how they fit that many of those women like in that little tiny house in the tiny house and i'm still curious like i don't know if there was a convention i don't know if they were you know going to a particular market i'm not sure what the what the goal of their trip was but they came filing out of that tiny house one right after the other and then meanwhile the honeymooners are like climbing up and down the ladder on the curly slide <laughs> and me and melanie are in our bras just drinking our wine like what is happening but what's what's funny is right behind this commune that i've described was a graveyard remember that and melody remember that we didn't notice that until we got back but yeah it was a 
big oh, old graveyard. really big, really old, really creepy graveyard. And I'm like, forget the ghost walk. Like, let's just hang out here and stay you here in happens. this yard yacht. Oh, my goodness. That was such a fun we, time. I don't know how. We did have. How do we get ourselves into these situations? <laughs> I mean, we agreed to a yard yacht. So, you know, you that's what that's what could happen. You could hit your head 10 times <laughs> just uh, trying to go pee to while taking a shower and then watch a parade of Mennonites get <laughs> out of their tiny house. I had a great time. Me too. Do you have a spooky medical mystery prepared for us? I don't know if I could say it's spooky, but it's definitely interesting. Tell me, Miranda, have you ever heard of HeLa cells? No, not at all. HeLa. H-E-L-A. No. Okay. No, I have no clue. That's what I'm going to teach you all about today. So HeLa cells hmm. are one of the most important cell lines in all medical research. So what they are, it's essentially a line of immortalized cells that reproduces indefinitely under specific conditions. What? Yeah. So I had to do a lot to kind of understand what they were talking about. But but essentially, this researcher, his name was George Odo Gay. He was a researcher the first one to study these cells. And he observed them and noticed how unusual it was that they reproduced at a very high rate. And you could keep them reproducing to allow for like a more in-depth examination. So is this like um, mitosis, meiosis, like taking me back to my, my biology in sixth grade? What is happening? It's probably both of those things, but it's cell division. So up until George discovered these cells, cells that were used in a laboratory, yeah. and that's what I'm talking about, like used in a laboratory, okay. human cells that were cultured and used in a laboratory only survived a few days. Mm -hmm. So that means that any research you're doing on the cells had to be very short term because they wouldn't stay alive. They wouldn't continue to reproduce. Mm, okay. So that really limits from, and, and I am not a biomedical researcher, but from, from that type of standpoint, it really limits how much research you can do because you had such a limited amount of time. Sure, right. But these HeLa cells would just divide, 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 divide without dying. Wow. And that's why they started calling them immortal. But they're still human cells. Well, yes, they are still, they're derived from a human. Huh, okay. We'll get to okay. that. Of course, because this was such an unusual find, they became adopted like all across the world as far as human cell research it, from a biomedical standpoint. So that is really crazy, you know, like you all of a sudden in, in the early 50s, you discovered this cell line that you can use for research. Mm. Now, there is so much information out there on this, so I'm going to kind of hit the highlights. But HeLa cells have been used in studies for research on viruses, cancers, and human genetics. Um, they were originally established in 1952. In the 60-plus years since then, they have contributed to over 
110,000 research publications. What? 110,000? They have been a huge component in over 110,000 research publications. And what was the time span on that, did you say? This is from the early 1950s. Until present day? Until present. They've done 110,000 different studies on this one cell line. All around the world. Wow. So I'll, I'll talk to you about a few of the things. HeLa cells were actually a huge contributing factor to the development of the polio vaccine. So Jonas Salk is very yeah. well known in biomedical stuff for coming up with the polio vaccine. He was only able to do all of his research because he could use the HeLa cells. They've also been used to understand the effects of x-rays on human cells, which that's important because I think when that first started, this was in like the mid 50s. I don't think we understood the effects of that, um, of x-ray technology on human cells. They've been used in multiple types of cancer research. They were actually sent into outer space. HeLa cells were in 1964. Outer space. HeLa cells were taken aboard some of the very first capsules used to explore outer space, and they provided initial clues as to how human cells would react to radiation and how space travel could impact astronauts. Dang. So that, yeah, right? But then this just keeps going. So in 1964, they were able to use HeLa cells to really shed light on blood disorders, specifically blood cancers and also sickle cell. So they were used in that. Then in the 70s, how salmonella causes infection. Hmm. That's pretty critical because we didn't understand the process Mm -hmm. of, you know, salmonella. And we did cover that, I believe, in one of our um, picnic poisonings, I believe. But salmonella is a bacteria that causes over 1.2 million illnesses a year. And prior to the use of HeLa cells, we didn't understand how that disease process worked. So that's a pretty big situation. Definitely. Then when we get to the 80s, it starts to be bigger things. Like scientists use HeLa cells to discover how the presence of the HPV virus can lead to certain types of cervical cancer. And I didn't realize that they've been studying that since the mid-80s, but that's impressive. The work that that the HeLa cells were involved in actually later led to a Nobel Prize that was won in 2008. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to bore you all with listing all of this, but I did count the total number of Nobel Prizes. There's at least six. What? That, <laughs> yeah, HeLa cell research contributed to at least six Nobel Prize awards. Oh, my goodness gracious. Which is, which is wild. Yeah. Uh, they were a huge part of studying um, HIV and AIDS in the in the late 80s. So that was like right around the beginning and were used to gain knowledge on how to use drugs that could help limit the spread of HIV. Wow. Aging is another one, tuberculosis, all kind. I mean, honestly, you name it. Uh, Ebola was another big one. That, you know, they ended up coming up with an Ebola vaccine. Hmm, That's right. um, Yeah. Which was because of this, uh, because they could use these cells. So just pause for a second, because this this is becoming a laundry list of 
Oh, it is a laundry list. So since the 1950s, you're talking everything from polio to outer space to HPV to salmonella to Ebola to HIV to HPV. All of these things. Tuberculosis. Don't forget tuberculosis. Nobel Prizes along the way are all basically the result of working with this particular line of human cells, these HeLa cells. Correct. That's a lot. That is a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and you're and, saying it's and, the same cells that have just been continuously reproducing, dividing, reproducing, dividing, reproducing. And people have been sharing these out and doing all these different experiments and doing all of this stuff. Right. Wow. Correct. Wow. So they were also involved in a lot of the research that went into COVID vaccine. I know that hmm. that's one of the more recent scientific contributions. But yeah, isn't that crazy that one single type of cell, one cell line that has been in existence since the early 50s has contributed to all of that? Purely because, like you said, they just reproduce so quickly. And, right. and people can just continue working with them. And because they have okay. worked with this one line, they can kind of make those. I guess it just limits the variability of working with other right. cells when you know this is the one that you're working with. Okay. What ended up happening is it is very, it's controlled and it's predictable. Yeah. And they know that it can continue replicating. Yeah. So for biomedical research, that's It's huge. a gold mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's unreal. So we're going to hit pause on this side of my story. Okay. And now I am going to tell you about a lady named Henrietta Lacks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Henrietta Lacks was born on August 1st, 1920 in Roanoke, Virginia. When she was four years old in 1924, her mother died giving birth to her 10th child wow can you even imagine oh my goodness wow having a 10th child in 1924 so of course henrietta's father was unable to care for either nine or ten children on his own i i couldn't find whether the 10th survived or not so after her mother's death, her father moved back to their hometown, which is totally understandable. Mm -hmm. And then he sent all the kids out, kind of farmed the kids out with family members, which, you know, 10 kids is a lot. And I can only assume that in 1924, you had to work a lot to pay for anything. Yeah, It was kind of a rough time in history. Oh, yeah. So um, Henrietta ended up living with her maternal grandfather, Tommy in a cabin that was once slave quarters on a plantation that had been owned by Henrietta's white great grandfather and great uncle. Oh, there's a twist. There's a twist. Yeah, there's a twist. So Henrietta and her family were not white, but they did have white folks in their lineage, I guess is the best way to put it. So, like most people that lived in this town, and it was Clover, Virginia, which sounds really cute. I've never been there. It's probably like Stars uh, she, Hollow. <laughs> probably. Well, and it. she worked as a tobacco farmer. Hmm. They were all tobacco farmers. Yeah. So, Henrietta would feed the animals, tend to the garden, all the things that, you know, kids who live on farms do. Yeah, that do. needed to be done. 
She did attend the designated black school, which was about two miles away from the cabin where she lived with her grandfather until she had to drop out and help support her family when she was in the sixth grade, which I think in that era, that was pretty normal. You know, you gotta, Mm -hmm. you gotta go to work. Yeah. So here's Henrietta again. She was born in 1920 in 1935 Mm -hmm. when she was only 14 years old. She gave birth to her first son, Lawrence. Okay. So she's 14. Yeah. In 1939, she had a second child, a daughter named Elsie. And Elsie had both epilepsy and cerebral palsy. Oh, poor Which I Elsie. can imagine. Yeah. Oh. That was pr- probably hard, very, very Gosh, hard. And to, poor to Henrietta. To... I mean, you're a teenager trying yeah. to raise a child with special needs that you don't know anything yeah. about because it's the 1930s. Right. Goodness. Right. Well, it, yeah, exactly. The father of both of those children was her future husband, David Lax. They did get married in 1941. So she was 21 when they got married. And a a little while after they were married, they moved to Maryland, a place called Turner Station, Maryland, which I hadn't heard of. It's in Baltimore County, so it's in the Baltimore area. Her husband, Day, got a job with Bethlehem Steel, which I'm sure in 1941, that was a really good score to get a job working working in a steel mill, probably, yeah. Yeah. Not long after they moved to Maryland, though, he was called to fight in World War II. Oh, no. But they were able, yeah, well, they were able to purchase a house. So they had a house and he made it through the war. When he came back from the war, they had three more children. So how many is that? Five. They're up to five children. Wait, did she have three more children while he was gone? No, after the war. Oh, okay. Like, he went to the war, and then when he came back from the then war, they had they three had, more. They had. I thought it was children. like he's like, "Honey, I'm home," and there's like three more babies. Like, hey, no, I, no, I wasn't no, expecting no. you it, so soon. <laughs> okay, it was. It wasn't like okay, that. The, the three more children were born in forty-seven, forty-nine, and nineteen fifty. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Henrietta All right, so has her hands full. Bless this woman. Henrietta has her hands full. She lost her mother when she was four. She came from nearly nothing. Right. I mean, a farming family that I'm sure was struggling to make ends sure. meet, being that she was one of nine or ten, or ten children. Yeah. So, you know, they they bought a house. He works at the steel mill. Things are looking up. They're still in the Baltimore area. So in 1950, I like I said, she gave birth to her final child, Joseph, and she gave birth to him at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Now, I found amongst my research that Johns Hopkins was one of the only hospitals that would take care of people who were African-American or black, mm. which is crazy to wow. me. But after giving birth to Joseph, Henrietta had some severe hemorrhaging. And I think it was, it must have been like post-birth. So she was already home and then she went to her primary care doctor. It was like more than what you expect. And her doctor sent her back to Johns Hopkins. There, 
her doctor at Johns Hopkins took a biopsy of the mass that was found on her cervix for and sent it for laboratory testing. It was discovered on that testing that she had cervical cancer. Oh, no. Um, yeah. So she was treated at Johns Hopkins and went through several rounds of the treatments that were available at that time. Mm -hmm. And if you read about them, they're kind of crazy. I'm sure. Like they inserted radium rods into the oh, tumor or gracious. whatever. I mean, yeah, they may do some version of that. But if you read the details, it, they've come a long way. Yeah. Put it that way. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So during her treatments at Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. Two samples were taken of her cervix. Mm -hmm. One sample was healthy tissue and the other was of the cervical the cancer. Cells. Right. And this was done, you know, without her permission or knowledge, but she was there for treatment. Yeah. So you wouldn't really, you know, you wouldn't really think about it. Yeah. It's important to note in this time period, there was no common practice of consent or permission, like all the things that we have in place. Now. Gosh, yeah. Like, so a stack you, of paperwork that you have to sign for your doctor to send a text message or to remind you of an appointment is requires like right. four pieces of paperwork. Then you went in, you were seeing a doctor and they did what they did. And like that was that was that. Sure. Basically. Yeah. Okay. So these samples, while she was being treated at Johns Hopkins, were given to a, a name that I mentioned earlier, George Odo <gasps> Gay. Yeah. He was a physician and cancer researcher at Johns Hopkins. So when he took this initial sample of Henrietta's cells, he noticed that they would divide and divide and divide. No, and divide. no, 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 no. Shut up. Yeah. What? I have to like pick my job. I was like holding my breath the whole entire time because like, okay, you started talking about Henrietta and like she's cool as hell and like I love my girl, but like what does she have to do with what you were just saying? Yeah. <gasps> it was her cancerous cervical cells that this George fella got a hold of through Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. I have chills. I'm like covered in chills. This woman's cancerous cervical cells are the Gila cell. He Gila Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Wild. Forget the ghost walk. This is like the the world's most terrifying horror story I have ever heard in my life. This is insane. Okay. This is insane. Well, the <laughs> so it was those cells that they did all of the stuff on that you were talking about earlier. The, yes. the polio vaccine, the Ebola vaccine, the HIV. The they were doing all of that on this poor woman's cervical cancerous cells her her cells yes so i i do have a few more things that i need to get to and we'll come back to that appalled look on your I face i am in shock over here yeah, this is no, insane it's, it's shocking this is insane so oh my so god so henrietta at the end of her life ended up hospitalized at johns hopkins they tried some treatments oh and gosh. they it, they weren't successful she passed away on october 4th 1951 at the age of only 31 years no old. No way. With five children. Oh, bless. Now, 
when they they sent her body to do a partial autopsy Mm -hmm. and it was found at that time that the cancer had metastasized pretty much throughout her entire body man so there really wasn't much hope but our friend george sent his lab assistant because they did the partial autopsy Mm -hmm. at johns hopkins he sent his lab assistant to take further samples no, he of, did Henrietta's, of Henrietta's cells while it was at the autopsy facility. He did not. Right. He did not. He did. He what did. a he, dirt bag, Melanie. What a dirt bag. Well, I mean, in his defense, and I didn't do a whole lot of research on that, but he knew he had something that could really help the world. And in the end, he was right. He was. But listen to this, though. So like I said, (laughs) Henrietta Henrietta had given no permission. She had had no knowledge. And that's the part that's so bad, right? Because it's like, I can sign up to be an organ donor and put it on my driver's license. And that's cool because I'm acknowledging and consenting to that. This poor woman had no clue. Right. Well, wait till this. Neither did her family at all. Nobody knew anything. They they knew that Henrietta had died. They lost their mother and and wife and family member, but they didn't know anything about the fact that these cells had been harvested and were being used. Oh my goodness. Until, again, remember, Henrietta died in 1951. In the early 70s, a large portion of the HeLa cells that they had had become contaminated by other cells. And I'm talking like within the lab. So there was a contamination issue. As a result of this, the researchers reached out to Henrietta's family members soliciting blood samples because they were hoping to get the the family's genetics so that they could differentiate between the HeLa cells and the other cells oh. because the the a large portion of the sample had been contaminated. Gotcha. So that's the early 70s. Yeah. That's 20 years after they had later. been doing all this stuff on them. Right. So the family is, of course, confused. Right. Like, what, is, what are you talking like, about? WTF like, are you actually talking about? Right. But I think through that, they thought it was just like some past stuff, like some research had been done. That's how it was okay. perceived by them. Yeah. And I couldn't find whether they actually gave the blood samples or not. I, I don't know. Uh, but in 1975, somebody tied to the family was at a dinner party mm-hmm. and there was some conversation that they overheard. So 1975, Henrietta has been dead for 24 years and it came to light that they were still being used, oh, that Henrietta's cells were still being used, which is wild. Oh my goodness. Can you even imagine your mother died 24 years ago and you just found out that her cells are still actively being used around the world? I, I mean, so, it makes me sick. I can't imagine if I was that, if that was my mom, you know, I would be right. outraged. I'd be absolutely right. outraged. 
Right. So a lot of other things have occurred since then. In the 80s, there were family medical records that were published, you know, because it's been used in all of these research projects all over. There was a big to do in 2013 because uh, researchers published the DNA sequence of the genome of a strain of HeLa cells. And the Lax family wasn't even notified that this was happening. And it's like essentially their genome is being published. So there was a whole situation with that. Um, it ended up in that same year that the National Institutes of Health came to an agreement between the family and NIH that gave the family some control over access to the DNA sequence, which is like, oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> For, for allowing me. Anyway, there's been lots of litigation and, and concern raised, rightfully so, because nobody should be using your stuff without, you know, you without knowing your consent. about it. That's right. That's right. So the biggest one and the most recent, which is actually what brought this to my attention, because this case actually just settled over the summer of this past year. They started a lawsuit in 2021, Lax family did, against Thermo Fisher Scientific. Oh. And I was like, at first I was like, huh? But if you think about it, all of these vaccines yep. that have been derived have been sold for profit. Oh, yeah. So Thermo Fisher and I'm sure other companies have used and made millions of dollars that wouldn't have been possible without Henrietta's sellers. Sure, 100%. 100%. So the Lax family actually uh, went after Thermo Fisher for the full amount of net profits. The settlement was sealed, so no one knows what that what it, was. What it, but they oh did man. settle in July of 2023. Oh, my goodness gracious. So, I thought that you would enjoy that story. Now, th since her passing, there have been many, many things done to honor her. There's a bunch of articles and books and movies, and a lot of them go way more in depth on her story than what I've been able to do here. But I did want to touch on a few of my favorites. Okay. So in 2021, the World Health Organization, uh, their director, presented an award to Henrietta's son, Lawrence, in recognition of Henrietta's unknowing contribution to science and medicine. Mm -hmm. And the chief scientist of the World Health Organization said, I cannot think of any other single cell line or lab reagent that's been used to this extent and has resulted in so many advances. So the scientists know. Wow. Another of my favorites, in December of 2022, it was announced that a bronze statue honoring Henrietta Lacks would be erected in Roanoke, Virginia, in what they're now going to call Henrietta Lacks Plaza. Hmm. This plaza was previously named Lee Plaza, and contained a uh, statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. So mm, I see. I was like, there you wow. go, Henrietta. <laughs> and if y'all are interested, like I said, there are many, many articles and books that go into a lot more detail. There actually also was a film that was created by HBO with 
Oprah Winfrey and Alan Ball. Hmm. That is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Oh, wow. And it was released in 2017. Oh, I want to check that out. But yeah, I, it is on, it's on HBO Max. I, I checked earlier, but uh, wow, right? That's insane. You just blew my mind. What an amazing, that is like such a true medical mystery, you know, and to think that this woman's life and her unknowing contribution, if you could even call it that, has shaped the entire world as we know it and the entire healthcare system as we know it. That's insane. A hundred, a hundred percent. And the part that I think is the craziest is if you go all the way back to the beginning of what they used it for, they were using these HeLa cells for polio, yeah. which was in the early 50s. Right, right. And then they were used in COVID vaccine production as Just well. Just a couple years ago. That's a huge, like, Man. I mean, no joke. That is immortal. <laughs> Wowzers. Do you know, are they still using them? Like, do they still have some of these? Oh, yeah. No, they, they still, it is still mm. one of the preeminent cell lines that they use for research. Wow. Well, thank you, Henrietta. My goodness gracious. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to Henrietta. Okay, Miranda, you have been trying to keep me on my toes lately. And the topic I thought you were covering is not what you're covering. So what are you covering? I made a last minute pivot uh, to talk about something completely different. And now for something completely different, but it is nowhere near as fascinating as the HeLa cells and Henrietta Lacks. So you'll just have to bear with me for this one. But what I wanted to get into tonight was kind of taking a another look at discipline, but I want to do it through a different lens. So I'm looking at the book that we've talked about before, Raising Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World. Remember that one? I think I do remember, and I always want to guess if it's by Dr. Ross Green, and it's probably not. <laughs> you and Dr. Ross Green, I swear, I'm just going to connect you guys on LinkedIn or something. You can go meet him. I can't get over it because it's like, it's like if, if like a very, very liberal Ross married Rachel Green and he took her name. I don't know. It does something to me and my friends. Well, I love I love it, but no, it's not by him. So I mentioned I want to talk about discipline, but I don't want to do it in the traditional sense because so often I feel like we just equate discipline with punishment. It's like synonymous yeah. with punishment or consequences. And all of that has a really negative connotation. So what I want to do instead is talk about how setting our children up with these systems of consequences and parameters is actually very healthy to help them understand cause and effect and ultimately become more responsible and even adaptable and flexible, which sounds way different. And don't you think that sounds a lot better? It does sound way better. Yeah. Way It's better. like a positive spin. So again, take all of that punishment stuff and throw it away, throw it out the window. Because what we want to look at is how do we help our children develop systemic skills? 
Okay. Uh, being able to understand how to work and live and function in a healthy system of cause and effect. I like it. Yeah. So let's start with that. Let's start with cause and effect because we just did like a whole deep dive and I know it was painful as hell on Piaget's stages of development. But one of the main things we continued to look at through that is how the developing brain understands cause and effect over time, right? So when you're a little bitty baby, you know, and you're playing peekaboo and you're learning about object permanence and some of these things, that's a cause and effect experience. When you are in the concrete operational stage and you're learning about these linear transactions and this lump of Play-Doh has this much mass and this lump of Play-Doh has that much mass, there's some cause and effect. And then even all the way up to like when you're a teenager and you're beginning to understand abstract thought and, you know, the gray areas of life, there's cause and effect affiliated with that as well. Kids have to be able to understand this. They learn to imagine all of the possible outcomes. And the goal is for them to achieve the outcome that they ultimately want, right? That's what we do as as adults. We we understand Mm -hmm. if I want X, I need to do this. If I want to buy a new car next year, I'm going to have to stop spending so much money eating out so I can save up and for a down payment on a car, whatever it is. So for kids, you know, it's the same exact thing. They could want a toy on the floor and they could understand if I crawl over there and get it, or maybe I am an older kid and I want to spend the night at a friend's house and there's something I have to do to get to spend the night at my friend's house. Maybe I need to clean my room. That's the trade-off. Maybe I want to, I'm a teenager and I want to borrow the car and go to the football game with my friends and I have to like mow the, the lawn to get the car so I can go to the football game. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, right? Okay. Yeah, those are all realistic examples. All very realistic examples. (laughs) So what I want to do is kind of look at this again through a more positive framework, starting with responsibility. When children have a good understanding of cause and effect, of course, they can learn responsibility for their own well-being And the goal is eventually for them to learn to take responsibility for others as well. That's what we want. We want them to be. That's what we hope for. Yeah. And so, again, by, by setting some parameters and a system of consequences and a system of this cause and effect, they learn to take that responsibility. They learn to... Maybe it's for themselves. Maybe it's for somebody else. For example, I always tell Fisher in the morning because he doesn't ever want to carry his backpack. And I get it. It's heavy as hell. Like, I don't know why kids in first grade have to carry a a laptop and a lunchbox and a library book and a water bottle and like all this stuff. Like, it's heavy on me. So I can only imagine how heavy it feels for him. Right. But it's also like I tell him every morning, it's not my responsibility to carry your backpack. It's your responsibility to carry your backpack. You have to carry it yourself. That's not my job. Even if you tip over backwards (laughs) when you put it on, it's still your responsibility. That's right. Suit up. (laughs) Get ready because you're going to have to carry a lot of heavy shit in your life. So when we allow our children the opportunity to take responsibility, think about how different that sounds from punishing them. You're allowing them the opportunity to take responsibility. They actually have an increased internal locus of control. 
which let me kind of back up and define what that means. Yeah, define a, <laughs> a locus, locus of, of control, control, please. Okay, so imagine that you are a tiny little dot in the universe because you basically are a tiny little dot in the universe. I was just going to say, I don't even have to imagine that. That's reality. Okay. And there's all this stuff all around you. Everything in the entire universe is, is just another dot around you as a tiny dot. And there's so many dots that are let's say, under your influence. And then there's so many dots within that circle that are under your actual control. So things that you can influence could include your health, maybe your happiness, Mm -hmm. maybe the grades that you make in school. All of these things are kind of in your influence. And within that, there's things that are more tangible that are within your control. So maybe instead of your happiness, maybe it's your ability to be thankful or practice gratitude. That's within your control. Maybe your health, you know, so uh, instead of drinking every night of the week, maybe I'm going to scale that back. That's within my control. Hopefully your child isn't drinking. I'm going to... I'm kind of fluctuating back and forth here. (laughs) You're making that a very adult example. That was for adults, everyone. Please note that one was for the (laughs) grownups. But you kind of get it. So so that's the locus of yes, control, I get the it. things that you actually have some power and control over in your life. And when we give our children that responsibility, they have an increased locus of control, which actually empowers them to take action and achieve the things that they want in life because they've seen that they've been able to do it before. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. You've seen it. You've You know it'll work. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I keep going back to is like, I love that Jonah and his friends got together to do the clean team thing. I just think that was so cool. Like him and his friends got together and they said, you know what we can do? We can pick up trash in our neighborhood and we can carry a little wagon around and we can pick up litter and we can throw it away. And that's living responsibly. They recognized something that was in their control and they applied the the things that they had, you know, to their power and they deployed, you know, this little plan and they cleaned up the neighborhood. And I thought that was so cute. And then they made all the flyers that said clean team and basically littered the neighborhood with the flyers that said clean team. Right, right. (laughs) And then they they basically like that (laughs) lasted for two or three days and they made like a bag of quarters. But but it was it the their hearts were there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is so cool. So they took some responsibility. They saw something that they could do to make a difference and they went for it. And I just love that. Yes. So that's responsibility. The other skill that I mentioned that we can help our kids gain when we are setting these parameters is actually adaptability. And this is one of the strongest skills of the human race. It's what's kept us alive this long. This adaptability and the HeLa cells have kept us alive this long. And a key piece of this is having the, I guess, ability to kind of modify your behavior or modify your actions to meet the expectations of the setting that you're in, which when you think about it is really where maturity stems from. Right. That I was just going to say that can actually be hard for adults to do sometimes. Yeah. 
And and if you haven't been, again, given the opportunity to practice that skill of being adaptable and modifying your behavior and practicing that, you can't fault an adult when they're immature. And it's it's kind of one of those things right. like where you like elbow your friend and you're like, dude, like read the room, right? <laughs> like, right, right. You have to be given some opportunity to read the room and to modify your behavior. I think about like, I mean, you know me, I've always been like a loud kid, very out there running around, like always wanting attention when I was little. But like when we went to church or like if we went to like mm-hmm. a grandparent's house, like there was an expectation. We had to tone it down. We had to behave. We had to be, you know, appropriate for that setting. And learning how to do that on my own really is what, and on anybody's own, is really what, again, initiates maturity and situational awareness to adapt. So an example here is like, if somebody says, well, this is just the way I am. This is just what I'm going to do. That's like a really immature, stunted way of thinking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And there's plenty of adults that fall into that category. Mm-hmm. Being many. Many. So being a mature individual is saying, you know, this is the way I need to be and recognizing the difference and being able to kind of plug and play and adapt based on feedback that they're getting from other people in a particular setting adaptability. Huge. Yes. The last one is really similar and it's flexibility. And this is just being able to bend if we find ourselves in some kind of unworkable position. So again, it's very similar to adaptability, but when we realize something isn't working, we pivot and we make a change, right? What Do you know that saying like the definition of, of insanity is... Is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. That's the one. So this is the opposite of that, right? Flexibility is the opposite of insanity. If I'm continuously, you know, doing blah, 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 and I'm realizing, hey, this has got me in a really bad spot. I don't like doing this so much. Maybe I pivot and I make a change in my behavior and I'm flexible and I can move on with my life. Yeah. It's a very good skill for everyone. Flexibility will serve you well. Always. 100%. As will adaptability, as will responsibility. All of these abilities. And you can't... These abilities are good. And you can't get these abilities, again, if you're not given the opportunity to explore within a, a system of parameters and consequences. So the two biggest barriers to the development of these systemic skills that I've mentioned are being overly strict as a parent or on the other side, being overly permissive. And both of okay. these things disrupt your child's understanding of these systems of cause and effect. So if you are overly strict and you don't ever let your kid do anything, well, they're not ever given any opportunity to explore or try things out or experiment or learn to be adaptable or flexible. This is the kid that's like brainwashed, group think. They're just going to go along with whatever their parents say. And they're so stifled because their parents have been so 
helicoptery their whole entire life. Yes, I've known many of those people as adults. It seems really hard. Yeah, it's not a good look. It's not a good look. And it's a really stifled human being, you know, when they grow up. Yeah. But then the other side of that is the parent who's overly permissive. You know, I think about the mom on like Mean Girls who's like, I'm a cool mom. And she's like giving them mimosas and stuff. Yeah. Again, your kid's not going to learn anything in that situation because there's no consequences. So they're just going to continue being a jerk and they're going to say the, you know, well, this is just who I am. And they're never going to learn that maturity and that situational awareness to adapt and modify their behavior around certain people or in certain settings. Right. It's so crazy to me when you really step back and think about it, how much moderation is such a critical piece to so many aspects of life. Like like you're saying, you can't be too strict, but you can't be too permissive. And it's, you know, in all things with us as adults, it's, you know, the the best way to lose weight is to, con- to eat things in moderation, like mo- drink in moderation, yeah. like kind of where what it all comes down to, really, in a way. It's so true. It's it's again, it's all about balance. But I think the the key is what I tell Fisher all the time when all he wants is protein. It's all about balance, buddy. But it's like yeah. the key is understanding the opportunities that we provide our kids by setting up those frameworks and understanding the really good things that can come out of that instead of feeling like we're punishing them or we're stifling them in some way when we do set those limits. And I think, you know, you have to kind of do that health check with your own self and kind of say, okay, am I on the too permissive side here or am I on the too strict side here? Is my neuroticism feeding into my child because I'm like overly obsessed with every single thing and I'm anal, which is probably where I'm at. (laughs) Or, Or am I too much on that permissive side where I'm just lax and I don't really care? And that's impacting my my kid as well. So yeah. it's just that continual exercise about it. So I want to give us some uh, some development skills here, some builders to help us oh, work on this. Okay, good, good because <laughs> I'm like, wow. I think I like depending on the topic, I might be both. <laughs> me too, me too. No, and I think we fluctuate for sure. So let's talk about the the three things that are the most important. Okay, and these are going to absolutely blow your mind. Okay. Unqualified positive regard, love, okay, and respect. How about that? Wow. <laughs> okay. Say the first one again. Unqualified positive regard, which basically means that you truly believe in your heart of hearts that your child is capable of being a good person and you love the heck out of them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, no matter yeah. what they do, that. you're always going to think about the best thing for them. Wow. Really cool. I've known some kids who don't, their parents don't have that. So, okay, that's important. And that sucks. And if you are missing that as a kid, I mean, already that's like, I think the most important ingredient and you're going to really be stifled as a child to miss out on something like that. Um, This is something too that Carl Rogers said um, in person-centered therapy was like, you know, he always believed in an unconditional positive regard for his clients. He always believed that his clients would be capable of doing the right thing. And he really believed them and was kind of going to be a cheerleader. Okay. I knew I had heard that phrase before. So there it is. There it is. Good old (laughs) Carl Rogers. Yep. (laughs) 
And then love, of course, and respect. And respect is one of those things where it takes a while to develop. You have to develop that over time. And it's always going to look a little bit different depending on how old your child is. But there comes a point where you have to respect your child's own individuality and their own autonomy and their own ability to make their own decisions for their own life. Otherwise, again, you're turning into that parent who is going to stifle and brainwash them, which isn't the goal either. So, yeah. And and that I can imagine can be challenging in a lot of different situations. I'm thinking more so as they get older. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, you always see the classic parents that like don't agree with what their kid's going to be. But we all have to know that our kid is going to be what our kid is going to be. And that should be okay. Right. Right. And that's really hard. And I mean, I'm not there yet, so I don't really have a stone to stand on. So let's dig in a little bit more to how do we set up these parameters. There's two things that we kind of need to do. So we've got the unqualified positive regard. We've got the love. We've got the respect. Now, what are we going to do with all of that? We are going to give clear feedback about the behavior And we're going to provide a consequential environment. So we let them know, hey, when you did blah, 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 this is kind of what was not great about that. And because you did blah, 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 this is what's going to happen. So that's the feedback about the behavior and then the consequential environment, the parameters. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And of course, we do that undergirded with the positive regard, the love, the respect. And we want to come up with a logical consequence. So when it comes to consequences, you know, we're never trying to harm, humiliate our children. We're not doing anything like that. We want to help them learn responsibility. We want to set limits and exercise the proper level of permissiveness and kind of give them consistent parameters. So that's a whole lot, but let me break that down and kind of give some examples here because this is always one of those things we have to kind of reevaluate. But like right now, Fisher's at an age where timeout doesn't work anymore. You know, timeout worked Mm -hmm. from like age three to maybe age four and a half, maybe early five but like, hey, you have to sit in time out. That's not really effective anymore as a consequence. So right. now it's we're taking away your iPad. We're taking away mm-hmm. something that you enjoy, that you like. That's a consequence for your behavior. You have to keep reevaluating these things. And as kids get older, it's kind of one of those things like the punishment fits the crime or whatever it is. Right. But you want to give your child an opportunity to see how the behavior is related to the consequence. And when we don't do that, we don't do that well, we're actually kind of providing our kids with the opportunity to learn how to manipulate, which is not great. Yeah. No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. Because they could learn how to lie or find their way out of it when they know the consequence is going to be this, this, or this. Consequences, just some quick tips here. They work best if they're related to the behavior. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. If they're respectful to the child and the adult, and they're reasonable to the child and and adult. So related to the behavior, respectful and reasonable. I've done the thing too, where like I've set a consequence or like a punishment that like I have no energy to maintain. 
And that's not great either. So you want to make sure you're picking something that is reasonable that you can keep up with. Uh, One example, this is so dumb. But I think I was like a preteen and I had I was mouthing off to my mom for something or other. And she got so mad at me and she blew up and she was like, from now on, you have to ask me before you do anything, absolutely anything. You have to ask me for my permission before you do anything. And you oh, know, boy. I turned that thing around on her so quick. And, and so it turned into mom, can I ask you a question? Yes. Mom, can I ask you a question? Yes. Mom, can I ask you a question? Yes. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Bear in mind, I just got into trouble for mouthing off. I was really good at this. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah. it was, for, clearly it was going to be this for the rest of the of her life, you know, had she not <laughs> adapted. So we've got to make sure it's reasonable for us. And we don't want to do anything that's like, not respectful or disrespectful. And gosh, I can think of like some some crazy things that have been horrifying, you know, if it's like a punishment where you're so embarrassed or you're so humiliated and you have to do something like, I don't know if I want to get into some of that, but no, you don't have to, no. but we've all know what you're talking about <laughs> when we, when we have those kinds of situations. So moving right along at the end of the day, there, there is in this book, a handy little, uh, breakdown of how long one of these types of consequences should last by the age of your child. So I thought that that was kind of cool. Oh, that's very helpful. That could be helpful. So ages three to six should be no more than one hour. Okay. So like if you're taking away TV, if you're putting like, I mean, you might be putting them in timeout. Surely, hopefully you're not putting them in timeout for, for an hour, but it shouldn't be any more than that between the ages of three to six. That's like the maximum time. Ages six to eight should be no more than one day. So if that's, you know, well, you can't have your iPad today. Maybe we'll try again tomorrow. Or you can't get on your Chromebook today. We'll try again tomorrow between ages six to eight. Now, eight to 12 is where things get fun. That's one week, like the Bare Naked Lady song. So consequence for the eight to 12-year-old. For me, it was you're not allowed to get on AOL Instant Messenger for the week. (laughs) That is brutal. (laughs) That was a long-ass week, right? Yeah, that was (laughs) terrible. Or maybe I have to do a certain chore. You know, maybe it's not having something taken away. Maybe it's something I have to do extra or something like that. Okay, but you have to hand wash the dishes every night this week. Yeah, for one week. There's lots of creative things there. Okay, and then the last one is ages 12 to 18. This is really interesting and kind of goes along with what we talked about last week. You want to involve your child in helping to come up with a consequence and help them to basically agree on a reasonable and maybe a creative solution. So consequences that exceed time limits can obviously destroy a child's incentive to improve um, and can be like a really negative thing there. So instead, getting your child to be involved here helps them to start thinking more like an adult and coming up with something that they can do instead, which is 
what we want. And then just kind of lastly, just a last little tip is it's always really good before you implement any of these things to give yourself a a period to cool off. Give yourself a beat. Give yourself a minute to kind of gather yourself before you go in and say, this is what's going to happen. Absolutely. And think about what that is going to be. Is it something you can sustain? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and make sure it's something that, that you're providing to your kid with firmness and dignity and respect. Nice. A new perspective to get these little humans to do what they should. What is our spotlight tonight? All right. This one's a little different than our usual, but Henrietta's story got me thinking about bioethics, and that is a very complex situation that very clearly mattered in her case. Mm -hmm. So I found this organization. They are called the Green Wall Foundation. Okay. And what they do, they seek to make bioethics integral to decisions in the health in healthcare policy and in research. Mm. So they're actually a nationally recognized private foundation with a whole lot of assets, over a hundred million. Wow. And they award approximately three to four million dollars annually in support of their mission to expand bioethics knowledge to improve clinical, biomedical, and public health decision making policy and practice. They're a 501c3, whatever I always say in the wrong order, a 501c3. Is that right? That's it. Yes, that's what they are. Anyway, you all can check out more about the Green Wall Foundation. It is actually Green Wall. It's G-R-E-E-N-W-A-L-L dot org. And I thought that was interesting. There are a lot of different organizations, but this was the one that was most closely tied to bioethics when it comes to biomedical research. And I thought that Henrietta would appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Thank you. If you like what you hear from us, be sure to follow our show. And if you really like us, you can leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We want to be friends with you. Connect with us on social media by following at Mother Mayhem Podcast or email us directly at Mother Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com.